millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome back to The Plays of Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Tim, Heidi, welcome back to the show. How's it going? It's going great, David. David. Great. How are you? I'm great. That's all we have the time for for small talk. Uh-huh. I didn't know the question. Oh, hey, great show. Great show. <laughs> we are here to answer questions about Macbeth. We have discussed all five acts of this great play, and then we put out a call for questions, and we got some questions. So we are going to answer as many as we can. We don't have as much time as we normally would, but we are going to answer as many as we can and give you guys something to, uh, to chew on, to ruminate on, to think about. So are you guys ready to dive right in? Yes, sir. Let's go. Okay. First question here. There's a long question that if we have time for, I'm going to get to someone emailed emailed it to me, but I want to go through some of these Facebook questions. Remember, if you have questions about anything we talk about on the Close Reads Podcast Network, you can email us at closereadspods at gmail.com, or you can leave comments on Instagram or on Facebook or in whatever other mode you find possible to get in touch with us. But here's one from Sharon to start with. She says that she was wondering about the witch's prophecies regarding Banquo. One of those prophecies is, quote, not so happy, not so happy, yet much happier. She says, I can see how the other prophecies came true, but not this one since he doesn't live beyond Act 3. Do y'all have any thoughts about this? Tim, do you have thoughts about this? I do. I, I read it kind of simply as he's going to be happier since his offspring is going to assume the throne. Eventually Macbeth will be happy because he'll have it short term, but Banquo will be happier because his offspring will have it long term. Did you have something more insightful, Heidi? (laughs) Well, I don't know if it's more insightful. I'm sure it's not, but like all of Shakespeare's language, there's multiple layers of meaning. Uh, and if you find one and you love it, you can stick with that, but you can kind of go to some of these other layers of the onion as well. So in high medieval times, the concept of happiness was directly connected to telos or purpose. So as you couldn't be happy unless you had fulfilled your destiny or your purpose in life. And if you step outside of it, then your, your happiness is lost, not just in the sense of kind of temporal joy, but that kind of deep down existential experience of knowing you're doing what you were created to do. And uh, so obviously that has ramifications for that quote as well. Um, Macbeth is going to lose out on happiness because his purpose here is fulfilled and yet it's evil it's dark it has this distorted impact upon him and on his uh, upon his world and so this quote is actually pretty deep you honed in on something exactly right but Banquo is going to be happier because even though he's not so happy because he gets murdered that's not very happy and yet his tell us his purpose his ultimate purpose is fulfilled uh, in a way that Macbeth's is not so yeah 
I, I, I also just within the structure of the plot of the play, his purpose is to die. So yeah, that's as a character. So there's a lot going on in this quote. If you look at it from that perspective and on that meta level of the craft too, that's an interesting point that I hadn't connected. Tim, do you want to add anything to that? Because there's a lot we could talk about as far as this high medieval concept of tell us as compared to uh i don't know high 21st century concept <laughs> yeah. <about Telos>. right <laughs> I, I that that vision of telos is was from aristotle was kind of a that was a real game changer for mm-hmm. me when i first encountered it like but that's a separate subject maybe i mean i'm heidi bringing it up was exactly right um i kind of wish we could do i hope we find occasion to talk about Aristotle's vision of telos maybe on some later subsequent show because it's so it's so profound rich, and very rich i think that would be pretty easy all we have to do is be like hey what do you guys think of aristotle's conception of telos yeah and that pretty much relates to i don't know everything that we talk about everything so. in the world we should get matt bianco on that podcast because tim and i are just gonna yeah that's exactly right and matt will push back a little so we should do a bonus you mean because one. he doesn't like aristotle and he wants he's a platonist Right. I do saying, mean yeah. that. That is what I mean. Mm. I, yeah. Okay. No, I'm not going to, I'm just walking away. I'm walking <laughs> Derail. Away. Derail. Yeah. Right. This is like, I should have, this is one of those instances where I feel like I missed my calling as being a youngest child because sometimes <laughs> just, I like to just throw things out there that are going to wreak havoc um, and create disorder in your brain. Okay. But so, we have, you have two Aristotelians here on the podcast with you who are like, love this whole this whole concept the very fight? very much so you, you love to fight well, about it i well i mean yeah kind of <laughs> we would both we would both fight for it we would both fight for yes it. right there would be nobody pushing against us unless you did david <laughs> right <laughs> well i mean that, and that would be my job right okay exactly um, speaking of my job let's go on to the next question camille uh-huh. um writes in the talk of act five so presumably she means in the episode on act five, I, I, must, I think that's what she means. I was, she was struck by the comments about Shakespeare not adding in any priest, monk, or religious characters to help Lady Macbeth when the doctor specifically told them she needed the divine to aid her. I realize it must be purposeful, and yet it seems to make no sense unless he wanted to show the doom that we fall into when we exclude God. Could it be because of the king and his religious beliefs? I'm not sure what his stance would have been on confession, exorcism, since she called for the demons to fill it fill her in act one or other practices that could have been offered pre-reformation. Jonathan comments that he'd been thinking about this too. So maybe it makes sense to bring it up. Okay. So might be purposeful. seems to make no sense unless he wanted to show that the doom that we fall into when we exclude God, um, could it be because of the King and his religious beliefs? Um, thoughts, Heidi thoughts about this. Right. I loved this question. Um, The play does not give us an internal explanation for this omission of a priest or uh, any kind of, you know, confession or sacrament, anything that could absolve her or help her with divine aid. The, The play doesn't tell us or give us really clues. So we're left with then our own assumptions uh, and interpretations. Uh, So I think, and I've said this from the beginning, that this is more of a pagan play than a Christian play because of this. Others have argued that this is, that the play does have a very Christian slant or way of thinking because of kind of the full arc or trajectory of um, uh, them reaping the full consequences of their sin. But I, I do think this happens because within the world of the play, there is no corresponding you know, goodness that rises up to meet the evil. I think it's left out on purpose because that's what Shakespeare's doing. He's creating a pagan dark world. Other people disagree with that. Tim? I think there might be something historically that's worth weighing in on. Shakespeare uses source materials in, in most of his dramatic plays and in all of his history plays, he uses source materials from um, something like Hollinshed's Chronicles. Oh, okay. or right, right, right. Right. Lives. So 
there's probably a legend, even if there wasn't a real Macbeth that existed, maybe there was, there at least was a legend of a King Macbeth out there. Did I say Lady Macbeth? Anyway, there was at least a legend of a King Macbeth. Okay, good. And um, that King would have conceivably predated Christendom. And so in a lot of Shakespeare's plays, he has this kind of dilemma about what to do. It shines really brightly in Hamlet, what to do with the kind of like chronological problem that he's facing, that he is living in a era that is steeped in Christianity and Christian concepts, but he's oftentimes writing about a period of time that predates Christendom kind of like being really prevalent in Europe. So I think that Heidi's explanation is probably the best explanation because it's, it's germane to the text of the play. But there might be another historical reason, which is he just didn't include any notion of a priest or, you know, a confessor or something like that, because those concepts would not have been around in King Macbeth's time. Hmm. So, so, okay. Well, no, because we're doing a short program. I'm not going to like go on a rabbit trail about how this shows up in Hamlet. We could talk about that if we do Hamlet, when we do Hamlet. <laughs> you, you wanna, Tim's going to be on the Hamlet like, podcast. I don't know, you need one. Like, I'm already lobbying for it, right? Like, <laughs> David, did you hear that? Like what interesting information I've got background on. Right. Like, Look, Tim, I know you're smart. It's fine. Don't you. <laughs> So like you want to have like you're 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 trying to decide in your head. Can I cover all of this stuff in Hamlet in five minutes right now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, let's jump ahead here a little bit to the next question. Uh, Sharon uh, asks. Speaking of Lady Macbeth, does everyone just accept that she committed suicide? The reason I ask this is because Act 5, Scene 1 is not a soliloquy, but is done in the presence of the Doctor and the Gentlewoman. When it became apparent to me that they were going to hear her confession, I wondered if their appearance was significant in a sinister way. I realized that by this point in the play, I wasn't trusting anybody, but that just st- stuck out to me. Why does Lady Macduff call her husband a traitor? And um, wait, I think this is a new, is this a new question? We'll start with that. <laughs> uh, does everyone just accept that Lady Macduff committed suicide? Lady Macduff. Um, yeah, I do. The, it doesn't tell us explicitly that she commits suicide. Her death takes place off stage, and there's no explanation given. It's kind of the setup for the great Sound and Fury speech. Um, but the play does not specifically say that she committed suicide. But yeah, I think that that's pretty much what most people think happened. I haven't heard a compelling alternate theory. Yeah, that's Tim? my question. No, I haven't. I would want to know what the alternate theory is. So mm-hmm. either she died of natural causes or died at somebody else's hand or was driven to it by evil spirits. And yeah, that, you like know, that. but then that would also just go along with the reasons for her suicide. Yeah. I don't think there's a, comp- that I have heard maybe that offered this question, David, Sharon, maybe she has, maybe Sharon has an alternative theory that is plausible, but I just haven't heard one. I'm intrigued by her her notion or her her point that she realized that by this point in the play she wasn't really trusting anybody. Right. So that that's a that's a very I don't know that we talked a ton about who can be trusted in this play. Um, um, But yeah, I don't see really. I don't see. It doesn't seem like there's any attempt at misdirection here. Right. Yeah, I don't see As far either. as the plot, the plot. It's not like a Tupac Shakur situation. <laughs> She's really alive in Compton somewhere. Yeah, but is, is the Tupac Shakur situation really a Tupac Shakur situation? That, I mean, this is a big question. This is- I, would, I would like to know what percentage of our listening demographic knows what we're talking about right now. Okay. Um, I think they're more familiar with the corpus of um, Tupac. Yeah, Biggie's house, right? So Tupac's a little bit West Coast, maybe. For yeah, our, yeah, maybe a little more East Coast yeah. people. Yeah. yeah, I grew up in California, so I have theories on Tupac's disappearance. But oh, I want to do. Yes, I want to hear yeah, this. No, I'm, I really, actually, don't. But I but, do think to go back. I do think Lady Macbeth did indeed commit suicide. Agreed. Unlike so. Tupac. <laughs> okay. Um, Amy says. 
how much time passes in this play? The action seems to snowball with one event on the heels of the last pretty quickly. Tim, do you have a sense of, I mean, is there, is it, is there some sort of specific determination of that or is that interpretable? I think you could put together a plausible timeline, but I think that plausible timeline would, what do I mean by plausible? I think you could put together a timeline, but I don't think there is much textual information given about how much time is passing. So you'd have to speculate in regarding things like, um, how long would it take for Macduff's Macduff to raise troops? How long would it take for the escaping sons to reach safety? You know, it, it would be, that's, I think how you'd have to put together a timeline. I don't recall anything, Heidi, within the text. Right. There's not really anything. I mean, Shakespeare is notoriously lax on details like that. He makes no attempt to make the plays um, necessarily easy to figure out things like that. And he makes, especially, you know, if we're going to talk about Hamlet, like he makes lots of errors, intentional or unintentional, is debated across the centuries uh, on issues of time and setting and duration and whatever. Uh, the main thing is that he does not use Aristotle's, you know, poetics of the continuity of, you know, one day in the life of tragedy, one place where the tragedy takes place. He plays with that. He breaks that form uh, and, uh, and is one of the first really authentically respected playwrights to, to do that without being criticized for it. You know, what's interesting, Heidi, is, I think you're right. So, so Aristotle says that in a tragedy, the action must be continuous. You know, so basically when we sit down to begin Oedipus Rex, the, when the play ends an hour and a half after we sit, that was an hour and a half of real time, both for us and in the world of the play. Shakespeare doesn't do that time. Right. It, this and location too. It's also yeah, just right. in the same place. And um, Shakespeare is like, whatever, I don't have to do that. And I don't have to be historically accurate. And I am going to have lots of different characters and lots of different plots. Aristotle also said the plot should be one plot. No such thing as a subplot. That was a flaw to Aristotle. Um, so Shakespeare just doesn't, he just makes a good story and says, I don't have to follow those rules. Yeah. Next thing we know, Shakespeare is going to be doing bottle episodes. Uh, Glenn <laughs> bottle Gary, episodes? Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross style. Yeah, you know, like an episode of a TV show or a play or something where it all takes place in one room or one building. Oh, Characters oh, are all bottled, so cool. bottled up. With like one shot. I love those. Yeah. Like anyway. the rope, like how Alfred Hitchcock's The Rope. Isn't that kind of an example of that? All in one I room. I haven't seen that in a long time, but I think, as I recall. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, Do you guys know how to pronounce the word that's spelled H-E-C-A-T-E? <laughs> uh, oh. Michelle says, Macbeth is my favorite Shakespeare play, and I've seen many productions on all platforms, including in Ashland, like uh, Tim mentioned on the Act 5 episode. So her question is about the pronunciation of Hecate. In all the above, I've always heard the last syllables rhyme with a T and not Kate. So Hecate, I guess, and not uh -huh. Kate. Hecate. Could you speak to this? Do either of you know what's actually the right pronunciation there? I think it is Hecate. I think it's Hecate also. Mm -hmm. How do we know that? How do yeah, we know exactly. that it's Right. Does it matter? No, it doesn't matter. I mean, the only way it would matter is if when you get to the end of a soliloquy, oftentimes a character before exiting good point. will have two interlocking rhymes. Mm -hmm. And if, if, the, if Hecate doesn't rhyme then that would be an indication it's something else, maybe Hecate. So that's the only reason that I can think of that it would really matter. Right. I, you know, what's interesting about this question is it's an, it, how do we know about pronunciation of any of these words that have kind of died away from everyday idiom? You right. know, like we know how things are pronounced because they are, because we have some grammar rules behind them. Hecate would kind of break our contemporary grammar rules. It should be Hecate because the E that follows the T underlines the A. Um, 
but a lot of these words are passed down by tradition. So all of the words that I kind of stumble upon when I'm reading Shakespeare, I always hear in my head, my Shakespeare director, Sparky Roberts saying, it's not Hecate, it's Hecate. You know, and she was always correcting me on those sorts of things because she's so familiar with the tradition that she knows how these words sound to an audience that knows Shakespeare really well. All of my pronunciations, like what's the other one that showed up in this play? Gloms. Right. G-L-O-M-I-S. Sure looks like Glomus, but the tradition is Gloms. Right. Or in and scone, it looks like scone, but it's scone. like there's there's lots of them here. Yeah, careful so, with that one though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. It's controversial. Why, why careful with that one? Well, it depends on where you're from. Like that one, you actually some people do say scone as opposed to scone. I mean, scone. Yeah. It's actually acceptable. Although, I mean, people who say scone will debate you about it. So. I guess that's the whole point, right? Right. Um, but maybe we should do a podcast where all we do is fight about the pronunciation of words. I mean, we've already done that with definitions. We might as well do it with pronunciations, right? I love it. I'm yeah. 100% uh, in on that. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, Asher wants to know if, Tim, you will consider trying your hand at finishing Macbeth the Musical as your next writing project. Macbeth no. the Musical. No. There, wait, isn't there, there's an, a Macbeth opera done like a pretty well-established um, composer. I, I should know that. Do you guys know who it was? No, I have no idea. That, that sounds kind of awesome. I have a it more important question. Awesome. Yeah. Can, you, can you sing, Tim? I can sing. I learned how to sing. Wow. So, so, so why will you not do the musical then? Because, because I don't know sheet music. I don't know because I would make write a terrible musical. Have you ever written a musical before? I have. I wrote a okay. Side note, like a, a brief plug. <laughs> I'm writing. having the best time right now. <laughs> tell us about your musical. <laughs> my one of my former students, Jonathan, who's a really lovely um, singer songwriter. I he and I collaborated on a an indie musical that's based after Moliere's misanthrope and we set it in a music we set it in a, a music studio and he had never acted before he had only like written these songs and I he did not want to act and I coaxed him into acting and I've like won awards for that play wow yeah I, yeah I'm really proud of it I think it's you think should it's be good. I have never written a musical, so good job. Tim, Tim, <laughs> I don't really know if best musical written by a host of close reads is really that big of an award, but you can take pride in that if you want. I will yes. take pride in that. I like, it's, a, it's a Venn diagram with a very small circle. It can yeah. be, like, one person can participate in that contest. <laughs> well, how do you know I haven't written a musical? Yeah, I shouldn't be. That's presumptuous. Have on, you ever now. written a musical? David, I'm not gonna answer that question. It's better. Oh, oh, um, okay. So Christine asks. Well, she says a few weeks ago that she asked about the objective correlative, and I mentioned I would bring it up on the Q and A. So Heidi, you have used this term. She notes uh, you used it. Um, use the okay. You used the knocking in Act Two as an example. Uh-huh. Um, some people gave examples from movies like the theme music from Jaws that made sense to her as well. So she was said she was trying to think of other times when I felt a specific emotion during a book or a poem or a story. And she's wondering, how do I know when to look for the objective correlative? How do I identify what it is? Is it always a specific object or event rather than an entire situation? Could it be a specific person? Are the emotions I feel um, primarily because of what happens in the story and the objective correlative is just there to enhance them? Or is it more than that? Right. It's a great question. So the, uh, the literary term objective correlative comes from T.S. Eliot uh, from an essay that he wrote in, I don't know, a long time ago, but in the 20th century. <laughs> I don't know exactly when it was. I should have that pulled up on I'll Wikipedia right now. Um, uh, so it's not an old, old 1919. Term. Thank you. Thank you. 1919. It's, I mean, it's a relatively new literary term. Uh, and, and he wrote it 
uh, in an essay about Hamlet. I think it's called Hamlet and his problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And it is, it's a wonderful essay. Really, really good. Tim, have you read that? No. Oh, it's great. Uh, and he's, he's not criticizing Hamlet, but he is kind of exploring the idea that Hamlet's emotions hey, hold are on, not... Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Take a step back there. He is too criticizing Hamlet. He literally uses the phrase that ha- the play is most certainly an artistic failure. <laughs> he does actually say that. That's true. And I, so... Okay, because, hold, can I interrupt you yeah, for a second? Yes. We brought this up on, I think it was with Angelina. We brought up that quote... And I remember, David, your dad is like overhears this from his office and he comes rushing into yeah. the close read to close reads to kind of like correct the misunderstanding of that quote. Sure. And I don't I mean, remember we, exactly what he said, but we can maybe, get into that. But it's he he's definitely offering criticisms of the, of the play as a side okay, note. Though, right. I, okay, he okay. is right. But he does say that about Hamlet. He does go on to kind of explore how that could be seen as a uh, uh, as a strength in the play. But the point of it, when he's talking about the objective correlative, is the point of it is that Hamlet, in Eliot's view, the play does not offer a complete understanding of Hamlet's emotional state, that it's left to interpretation by the readers and the audience. And there's not some kind of objective correlative in the play that tells you exactly how Hamlet is feeling all the time. Um, and go ahead. Well, it also, and it also has to do with evoking a response in the audience that is representative or, uh, stand in or similar to the responses of the characters themselves. So right. what he would say is that Hamlet, the play itself is an artistic failure because it does not evoke. It, there's not enough there to evoke in the audience, the same um, senses, the same emotional responses that Hamlet is supposedly um, feeling in the play. Right. Which could be at the same, I mean, we're getting off on a way rabbit trail here, but this is talking about literature, right? Way leads on to way that right, uh, yeah. lots of people have made that same criticism of say crime and punishment with, because Raskolnikov doesn't ex- have a reason to have killed the charwoman, but that's kind of the whole point. Right. That's the whole exploration of the novel. And so the counterbalance then to to Eliot is that's what Shakespeare was trying to do. It's not a flaw. It's the whole point. But to get back to the idea of the objective correlative, though, is what he says is that a, a work of a work of literature should have within it some kind of idea, some kind of symbol, some kind of image or experience within the play that tells you the emotional state of the characters or of the play itself. For example, for example, in uh, and I don't think Elliot uses this, um, but I have read it somewhere else. Um, but I think this is the best example of 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 an understanding of objective correlative is in the Iliad when. Achilles finally decides to go back in and join the battle and avenge Patroclus. And as he's going into battle, he stands in front of the skiing gates, the gates of Troy, and he lets out a war cry, this like powerful war cry. And at the sound of the war cry, all of the soldiers lose heart. And some of them even start running away from battle. And that war cry is an objective correlative to how Achilles is feeling and how the audience or the readers are supposed to be feeling at that time that's encapsulated in that image or experience in the, in the story itself. So that's what we're looking for when we're looking for an objective correlative. Interestingly, um, in the essay on Hamlet, Mm-hmm. Eliot specifically references Macbeth as an example of Shakespeare's use of a, of a like positive use of objective correlative. Right. Which is where uh, I was going with the knocking. Yes. Yeah. So no. he, he references it. So, sorry. Sorry. No, no, no. Like, go. Well, he, he references it. I, in fact, I think if you look up objective correlative, like on Wikipedia, even you'll see that it references the, um, it references Eliot referencing when Lady Macbeth is sleepwalking. Uh huh. And that the the um, the detail in terms of the sensory perceptions that she is experiencing, it those capture or represent effectively 
her mental state uh-huh. so that they 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 are evoking you know they're they're evocative of her mental state through sensory sensory de- details that the audience can perceive and right. so his complaint with Gertrude for example who can play with Hamlet is that so much of Hamlet's emotional state is wrapped up in Gertrude but that Shakespeare does not effectively manage to provide sensory detail uh, to to evoke a response in the audience that is commensurate with with what is Hamlet is supposedly feeling. So, but he's saying that you know the knocking, for example, or the sleepwalking thing, or the war cry, that is going to evoke something that is going to um, going to measure out, in a sense, mm-hmm. the response or the 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 interior life of the character. Right. That's, I think that's a big part of it is this, this idea of what something that's going to measure out in a in a sensory way the inner life of a character because that's that inner life is what is sort of foundational to a conflict or or you know a catharsis all those things that go into into understand understanding the way a story works. So you have to find a way to represent those through through the senses. And that's what Elliot was trying, trying to get at. Right. Right. And the, and the objective correlative doesn't have to simplify the experience. In fact, a very, very good objective correlative, something like the sleepwalking or the knocking uh, gets to the complexity of the emotions that are involved in it. So it doesn't have to be, you know, the one in the one in the Iliad is pretty simple, right? The the war cry is the rage of Achilles, and that's what the whole that's what the whole Iliad is about. Seeing a muse of the rage of Achilles. That's why that particular objective correlative is really easy to understand and reference. But something like the sleepwalking has a lot of complexity to it, uh, and and so does the knocking. The idea that there's something off stage that's pulling the characters away that's that's calling for the characters. It's evoking something, uh, and and does it. Is it the existential void that it plums the depths of? Is it the the dark characters? Is it death itself? So the objective correlative can have multiple levels of meaning and experience expressed within it. Uh, in fact, a really good one probably has even more complexity. So, and Hamlet Macbeth excels at that. Yeah, Tim. Does is Elliot recommending a path of? Art, like good art, ought to include, free me, I'm butchering this, accurate objective correlatives? Or is he just saying this is a literary tool by which we can come to understand characters, plot, scenes? Um, I think in, it's been a long time. I read this, I read this. It's been a long time since I've read the whole essay. I have looked at, I did look it up the other day and read some of the parts about this. And he is criticizing Hamlet. And he is saying that Hamlet doesn't work, um, that the feelings of Hamlet are not kind of sufficiently supported by the other characters and experiences in the play. Um, but he, he's not necessarily trying to come up with some new literary term by which we should, or, or standard by which we should um, assess. Yeah, like by which a, a piece of literature rises or falls. He's he's coining this term that kind of took on a life of its own in order to talk specifically about Hamlet, and then you know as a lot of the terms that the new critics came up with, it just took off Yeah, and became academic. I, I recommend checking out the Wikipedia page on this because there's a lot of details about what inspired him to write the essay on there and some of the other, the other critics that he's responding to. Uh, I think he's responding to Coleridge, for example, and Goethe and, and um, I, he has the problems. romantics. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I th- I personally think he is after a sort of um, a sort of how do I want to put this? I think he I think he would say that it is a um, key aspect of storytelling itself. Like I think he is adding to what you know. I think he would view it as adding to, you know, like poetics or something like that. Like I think if he, he's in a sense writing his own um, sort of mini poetics where he's saying, these are the things that make for good storytelling. 
Right. Um, well, and as you said, he's responding to the romantics. So he's saying, like, stop trying to confuse me with your, like, complicated characters. Like, well, I think he even argues that he doesn't think that Shakespeare is is clear on uh, on the the emotional stakes, the emotional state of Hamlet in, mm-hmm. in the play itself. Like, I think that he's saying that this, the play is not sufficient to answer the questions that it's asking. Um, but that's, I mean, that we have to talk about Hamlet. Right. We, <laughs> there's a lot going on there. Maybe we should do a Patreon right. episode where we just talk about this essay. Right. Um, that would be fun. He does acknowledge the greatness of Hamlet. Well, yeah, we should. That's a different, that's a different conversation. Um, let's, let's talk about this one here. Well, here, I want to read a, there's a lengthy one here that I want to at least bring up and get some feedback from you guys on. Someone emailed me this. So I said I would bring it up. Um, it talks about a comparison between Macbeth and then the books of Daniel and Ecclesiastes and even Beowulf a little bit. So this person writes and says that Daniel was a believer in exile. He embraced his lot and became a double-edged exile, exile from home and exile from the surrounding culture as well. And, and um, this person says that Macbeth is an inversion of Daniel in the respect that he also becomes an exile within the community surrounding him. Albeit he, he is only he is aware of it. So there is an appearance of inclusion, yet he is internally fully excluded. So thus is an inversion of Daniel's exile within the castle. And then, um, man, there's a lot here. I'm trying to, to pick out exactly what I want. Who to is this that wrote this, David? The email doesn't, I don't have it on what she put here. She didn't say her name, so I have to go find it. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the sake of time, I'm not going to, I can't, I'm not going to do that. I should have printed up yeah. the whole email. Yeah. I just printed, she sent me it as an attachment. So I apologize for that. Um, I'll, I'll find that out. Um, then it mentions that Beowulf as a tribute to the Germanic, um, Mm, see, she's got all these different parts of this. The that opening comment about Daniel, I thought was really insightful. That's like thoughtful literary criticism. Just, I don't know. It made me think. I had n- I've never thought about that before. I thought that was very clever. I wanted to give her a shout out, presuming it's a her. It is. I know that. I know that much. <laughs> okay. There's a there's a couple different things she mentions here because um, she mentions that Beowulf tells of the ultimate warrior and king, uh-huh. signifying nothing outside of saving faith. Pagan character is possible Christian voice to the author. Um, she's. I'm kind of having to interpret a little bit of her thoughts here, um, but she also mentioned that Daniel as a prophet of the or Daniel as a prophet of the vanity of the four empires of the ancient world through his dreams, his dream interpretations and visions, and how Daniel shifts from historical narrative to apocalyptic literature, the chaos of the end times redeemed through a savior and so forth. Um, and then mentioned she mentions Daniel's response to the visions was that where his color was lost and he lacked understanding, yet he was faithful to remember. Mentions how Macbeth is a mix of historical narrative and tragedy as well. Macbeth yearns for the witch's prophecy, yet he can't wait to he can't wait to forget. The ensuing chaos of nature is representative by a complete breakdown of harmony, and therefore a need of redemption. So there's this hint toward toward redemption, yet it's not brought into fruition as the monarchic cycle continues. So there's a lot going on here that she's mentioning right. that I just thought I'd throw out here. Um, with King James and his fascination of witchcraft, is this perhaps not a cautionary tale, especially taking into consideration the biblical literacy at the time in contrast to the modern man? So what do you think of that? I mean, with his fascination of witchcraft, I don't know if you know anything about that, any of you. Um, is this meant to be a cautionary tale, do you believe? Is he speaking to that in some way? Does she propose an alternative way of reading it other than as a cautionary tale? It sounds like she's tied in. The question sounds like as if it's tying in the cautionary tale with James's ruminations on demons. Is that? Yeah. So he has this fascination of witchcraft. So I, I'm taking this as is this meant to be in some way sort of a response to King James's fascinations, oh, almost like oh. a warning in a sense. I I practically speaking i really de- okay back up i think it's a cautionary tale macbeth um 
uproots a good ruler, kills him, places himself on the throne, and is ultimately meets his own demise because he has done uh, a terrible murderous thing. So I think in that way, probably everybody's agreed. It's a cautionary tale. Is it a cautionary tale regarding meddling in the supernatural? I don't think that Shakespeare is, I don't want to be, I don't think that he would scold his patron. Right. That's the easiest way to say. Well, is he doing it, you know, without him? Like, is he trying to do it subtly? (laughs) Yeah, in a roundabout fashion. Yeah. Well, and another thing is James was, I didn't know about his fascination with witchcraft. That's news to me. Um, I'm curious about that. And it sounds like she's really well, like developed really well this idea and supported it with other, I mean, that sounds like, like write an essay and send it to us. That sounds right, yeah, yeah, wonderful. Yeah. I'd love to see that fleshed out. Um, yeah, write an essay for us and then send it to us is what we're saying. That's right. I mean, really, seriously, that that's, you're really thought through that incredibly well. Um, one thing to keep in mind is that in the, within the world of the play, Macbeth violates the divine right of kings through the activity of witches and James the first wrote an impassioned pamphlet uh, in favor of the divine right of Kings. And so as a King would, as a King would exactly. And this was, so he believed passionately. So if there's a cautionary tale, as Tim's saying, it would, it would be more likely to be in favor and flattering towards the King. And I think that's more likely to be the, the area of, um, of flattery that we'd be looking for uh, is towards James the first divine right of Kings. Macbeth violated that and Macbeth had to be removed and the divine rights of Kings triumphs again through the prophecy of the witches. Hmm. This is not to say that Shakespeare uh, lacked the ability to speak sideways when he needed if he needed to to say something that could be critical of existing power we've talked in the show before like you can read Virgil's Aeneid which was his patron was Caesar Augustus you can read Virgil's Aeneid as this very sophisticated way of both accepting the patronage's patronage of Caesar Augustus while at the same time kind of like undermining the kind of bloodlust of the Roman empire. Virgil, I think you can make that case. Right. Shakespeare had that ability. I can't think of many, I can't think of a single instance where he did that. Now he may have done it with regards to like, I don't know, like the vision of, Jewishness and the Merchant of Venice. You know, there are other ways in which he may have kind of like smuggled something into his plays that criticized his audience's um, views. I just can't recall, this might just be ignorance on my part, a moment where he is smuggling in a kind of like stinging criticism of his patrons. Right. No. Well, the closest he came to that was a very early play in Richard III when the Queen stormed out of the performance. Oh, I didn't know she left the performance of Richard III. Yeah. So she storms out of the performance. No, it was Richard II. Excuse me. Oh, okay. It was Richard II. So she storms out when he gets deposed saying, no, you not this. This is Richard. No, you not that I am Richard. That's what she says. No, you not that I am Richard. So she storms out. Shakespeare never kind of messed with that again. But he does present alternate <laughs> viewpoints and kind of point counterpoint throughout his history plays. So I do think this play is pretty straightforward. So, um, well, we are running out of time. So I want to just go back to one final question here from Esther. She mentions, you know, she admitted when we started going through this play that her feelings on Macbeth were similar to when. He said, I don't love it. I don't know exactly who the I there is, uh, unless it was me. Um, it was you. 
dark and disturbing maybe even historically inaccurate but i think i kind of love it she says so her question is why why against my better judgment do i love this play she says she sounds like mr darcy so maybe a better question is heidi and tim why do you love this play i know david asked you this in the first episode but um your enjoyment of this play was obvious in every episode and i want to hear again now that we've gone through it together and it is fresh in our minds what is it it what it is about this play that makes it one of your favorites can you sum up why folks who are reluctant to love it and uh, ought to give it another chance uh, now that we've gone through the whole thing so uh, as your closing thoughts i'm going to let you each have i don't know 30 seconds to answer that question she asked if my opinion of Macbeth has changed at all after going through it and it has not. <laughs> David, David. Oh, I, I, I respect it, but that doesn't mean that I yeah. don't find myself like, I'm not going to go back and reread it right now. I don't, I don't, I don't love it. Like you do. I respect it. I, I see the genius of it, but it's not a hard play for me. So I'll just, you know, I, I feel like that's fine. I feel like it's fine to know myself in that way. <laughs> is that, is that okay? Am I allowed to, to say that? It's okay, except for Heidi and I off the air kind of agreed that this whole series of podcasts was going to be an apology for the play meant to kind of enlist you in the ranks of its lovers. But I knew that, and thus I dug in very deeply. (laughs) Yeah. Emotionally. Fair enough. I also, I said, I said, I have a, you know, I like to play the youngest, but also I am an oldest and therefore I will not be convinced of anything. Right. Right. Um, That's right. No, no, I, no, I, um, I, uh, I respect it a lot. I mean, I, I enjoy talking about it. I, I don't, I don't hate it. I just don't love it. It doesn't move me the way some of the, well, I mean, some moments move me, but as the overall, you know, it's still dark and gray to me, which and weirdly are not things that I necessarily am repulsed by usually. Uh, so anyway, final thoughts, 30 seconds, each of you. Okay. You know what? Here's your final chance. Convince me 30 seconds. Now that we've talked about it, your amplification, Tim, you go first. Oh gosh. How do you go first? (laughs) (laughs) Which one of us is going to go first? Tim. I'll go, I'll go first. Heidi. I have, I love this place so much. It's kind of like David, if I ask you, why do you love your wife? you have to step back and try to kind of like extract things that are nameable and descriptable so that other people can understand like the kind of like immersive feeling that you have for your wife. That's how I feel. I mean, about the play, I would have to like step back and make an articulation. And I would say things like it's so suspenseful. The character work is brilliant the word work is like, I think hasn't many rivals in the history of Western literature and certainly not within English literature. And I'll, I'll stop there. 30 seconds. I'm I'm convinced it's my favorite Shakespeare play. Yes. Heidi, you're Heidi, we Heidi, we did it. Yeah, yep. I have to take that as an affirmation. I do love this play for all the reasons I brought up in the first episode. I I am very drawn to the perfection of craft and the thoughtful way in which Shakespeare develops these inversions. It's actually really hard to do to take something to to take kind of a series of sacred hierarchies within a civilization and turn them upside down uh, and explore that in multiple ways throughout the course of a play. I think part of what somebody like Esther, you know, these really good, um, like moral Christian readers kind of need a set of glasses in which to see some of the darkness in these plays and in the stories that we read as having any kind of redemptive presence. And I think that that's fair. But what Shakespeare always does is to create a trajectory or an arc of justice so that at the end of a play, with a few exceptions, sometimes there's these outliers which create some pathos. It's not all neatly tied up ribbons. But with the main characters of these tragic plays, you do see a sense of justice and renewal at the end of the play. And we do see that in Macbeth. Um, And so I think once we've, once we have the eyes to see that in some of these dark haunting 
plays and stories that we read, um, once we've been trained to kind of recognize those threads of redemption, it's easier for readers who are looking for more of that happy ending to at least to be drawn to it. Um, but the reason that I love this play has everything to do with craft and kind of the existential questions that are brought that are brought out of it. And um, that's not something you can convince people of. That's just something that appeals to you and 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 um, calls to you or doesn't. It just does to me. Maybe it will the next time I read it to me. <laughs> um, and I do, I, I don't want to diminish, like, I don't mean to bring, bring the mood down. I, I actually right. enjoy this play, it's, but it's not, you know, I do find it. Um, it's just not my favorite. Right. So. I can't imagine anyone convincing me to love paradise lost. Like I appreciate it. I like it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I can, I can see the brilliance of it, but there's just sometimes that some great work of art doesn't touch your soul and that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Well, I guess that would be a good year end like list. We've done like great romances. What about the books that you know, or the, you the works like. of art that you know you should <laughs> like them, but you just don't. Right, right. That 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 I, th- I bet that'd be really easy for all of us to come up with a list. Absolutely, of like twenty five books. <laughs> Maybe like, I appreciate it, but I don't love it. It just yeah, never. Right. It ne- it never brought that thing that, out in me. That might be way easier to curate such a list than it is to curate the ones that you're like. I definitely these are my hard books. Huh. In some ways, yeah. that'd be easier. That'd be yeah. an interesting question. So, all right, well, we got to go. Uh, yep. Thanks to you both for for joining me for these question and answers. Thanks to everyone who sent in uh, sent in questions. This has been fun uh, talking about Macbeth. Our next play is Othello. Tim, you will definitely be in on that. So we'll be releasing news on when when those podcasts will be coming. Make sure you check out everything else that's going on the Close Reads Podcast Network. You can follow us over on Instagram. Join the Facebook group. Shoot us an email if you want to talk to us over at Close Reads Pods Close Reads Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, I am rushing through this because we have to go. But for Tim McIntosh, for Heidi White, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening to The Place of Thing. We'll talk to you next time and happy reading. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.